fellow fiends. Welcome to another terrifying and delectable episode of Nightmare on Film Street. The horror podcast with zero credibility, but all of the blood, ghouls, and gore. Your puny heart can handle. <laughs> Let's give a grave welcome to our hosts, John and Kim. Hello again, fiends, and welcome to Nightmare on Film Street. I'm Kim. I'm John. And this week, we are... How do I even introduce this? Say my name, say my name. <laughs> It's the craziest double feature we've ever done. The most loosed, the loosest, the most loose pairing of the podcast. No one asked for it, but this is, I, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody asked for this episode. I, I think this is why I like our podcast. <laughs> and, and I hope this is why you like our podcast. Oh my God. This is the most, ra- so you know, we're kicking off 2019. The oh, most- this is a great first episode <laughs> to the year. The most sensible way possible. Yep. With a pairing of Candyman and Beetlejuice. That's right. Two uh, entities that you call upon by saying their name, saying their name. Thank you, John. I don't know if that really, <laughs> yeah, to be perfectly honest, I had nothing to say after that first uh, first wave and I just wrote it on in. I hope you guys had an amazing Christmas break, holiday break, New Year's, all the stuff that happens in that period of December where you just go into a food coma and you don't know what day of the week it is until somebody asks why you're not at work. Oh, it's such a mess. Guys, uh, today was my first day not eating like a horrible person and it was awful. My entire body was like, bro, where's where are the snacks? We're, it's been it's been half an hour. We're supposed to eat again, right? No, not at all. Um, I hope you're doing better. I'm just going to start this episode the way I normally do uh, by asking Kim, what's keeping you creepy this week? Well, if you guys haven't heard it yet, we released a bonus episode last week during the break. It was John and my top 10 horror genre films of 2018. Uh, We both counted down our picks. There was some crossover. There were some surprises. John has a number one that I don't necessarily agree with. Because you haven't seen it. Because it's not hereditary. Well, that guy, yeah. (laughs) Uh, And there's also a ton of best of articles now on the website. They're all stickied at the top of nofspodcast.com. There's top female performances, top male performances, top villains of 2018, and our 10 favorite moments of the year in horror. So there's some great kills, uh, some big shocker surprises. You're not even going to try and rhyme it? Some great kills, some chilly thrills. I didn't need to rhyme it. I'm talking like a human being. (laughs) Um, But I will say, John, that was your article. You did a good job of not spoiling mm. some of the thrilly moments that mm. you picked out. So if even if there's some that you haven't seen, don't worry. They are not super spoily. Yeah, even if you haven't seen Hereditary, there's no spoilers. And a small spoiler here, that's on the list. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if you've been avoiding any of our top 10 stuff because you've had enough of them already... Uh, We do also have some titles in there that are movies to look forward to that are coming in 2019 that we were lucky enough to see 
uh, on the film festival circuit in 2018. Yeah, and then if you're totally sick of best of lists and talking about 2018, this January we are celebrating Body Horror Month because, you know, January is one of those months where there's there's not a whole lot going on, so we just figured we're going to throw as much gore, grossness, pustules, Ugh. body morphia. <laughs> new year, new you, right? Nothing more horrifying than when your body just revolts against you. Becomes something else entirely that you couldn't possibly understand. We've got body horrors of puberty. Body horrors of, like, doctors and weird, awful surgery. Every possible avenue. We're going to make arguments for movies that are technically body horror, despite the fact that no one calls them body horror. Werewolves. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Werewolves, that's my number one. It's a body horror. That's a subgenre of body horror. Werewolf is always a body horror. No argument. Yeah, agreed. Sometimes vampires, too, right? Oh, totally. Because yeah. you got like, especially movies like Afflicted, where you like you are in that transition, or like the sickness fate. part. Yeah, yeah, where it yeah. like lasts a week. And you got to die first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, you can follow that all month long at nofspodcast.com. We have a ton of editorials that are going to be going throughout the month, uh, and some amazing stuff planned. So yeah. that's going to be really awesome. What better way to celebrate all them new muscles? And changes your body's With making new limbs. Digit. Yeah, some extra <laughs> limbs. An antenna or two. <laughs> we should just call it David Cronenberg month. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, early days of January, we already have new horror. Uh, Rust Creek just came out from IFC Midnight. But coming this week is the Cube slash Saw mashup escape room. Yeah, we're going to be checking that out. Uh, hopefully... Tonight? (laughs) When this episode drops? Yeah, and we're going to be recording our bonus Drive Home from the Drive-In review for Patreon, that Patreon-exclusive episode, which you can expect this weekend on Patreon at patreon.com slash nightmare on Film Street. Speaking of Patreon, I just want to give a quick shout-out before we get started on our Say My Name, Say My Name (laughs) double feature. God, this never gets not funny. (laughs) This is just too weird. What have we done? Uh, Before we get started, I just want to give a big shout out to our most recent patron supporters, Andre, Tra, Parker, Chris, Andrew, you know what? I I got a better idea. Uh, Andre, 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 Tra, 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 Parker, 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 Chris, 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 and Andrew, Andrew, Andrew. If you want to have your name summoned on this podcast, (laughs) head over to Patreon, or really honestly... Just head over to patreon.com slash Nightmare on Film Street. Check out all the cool bonus content available to you as a monthly supporter. But again, thank you guys so much uh, for supporting the show. We'll also be doing our second live stream on Patreon January 26th at 2 in the afternoon. Oh yeah, right. Uh, that We're doing that one at earlier in the day in Eastern Standard Time. So those of you across the pond will get a chance to play along in the live stream and it not be like five in the morning so uh those of you uh in the americas you better uh show up for lunch brunch with nightmare on film street where we will have i think we're gonna be talking about glass yeah Uh, glass is out by then so hopefully we'll have some things to say on that and we'll play some horror trivia but yeah, that is January 26th at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at Patreon. Let's talk about Candyman. Have you ever heard of Candyman? And if you look in the mirror and you say his name five times. In cities everywhere. Candyman? They whisper his name. Right. Candyman. It's just a story. Candyman. Candyman. Just a ghost story. Candyman. 
An entire community starts attributing the daily horrors of their lives to a mythical figure. <laughs> Helen, a woman died in there. Leave it. Everyone knows he isn't real. That's modern oral folklore. Everyone. Except Helen Lyle. Bernadette! It ain't safe around here. I don't scare too easy. Wanna know about Ruthie Jane? They ain't never gonna catch him. Who? Candyman. Helen. Who is that? I came for you. Do I know you? So, Candyman from 1992. Directed by Bernard Rose. Candyman is currently sitting at a 6.6 out of 10 on IMDb, 75% on Rotten Tomatoes, 3 out of 4 from Roger Ebert, who I think saw it at the Toronto International Film Festival, where it premiered as part of the Midnight Madness screening, oh, fun. Uh, but also has a 3.4 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So I had first seen Candyman as a kid. Um, we rented it from the Jumbo Video at the Cottage and... Uh, it was a VHS tape, and I didn't remember really anything about it other than, you know, what you you know about Candyman. He's got the hook for a hand. You say his name three times. He Five times? Five times? Oh, whatever. You you bloody marry him into yeah. existence. <laughs> <laughs> and then he comes and he hooks you to death. Unless, of course, you're Virginia Madsen, and he wants to make you his woman, right? Um... <laughs> So we're going to get back to that. <laughs> but before we get into the, to all of it, I just want to say that uh, I also don't necessarily have a lot of strong memories before we sat down to rewatch it now. Um, I watched it as a kid as well. And I have a few scenes that like really stuck with me because it was always on TV. And I think I just watched segments of it at a time. Mm-hmm. But I, I love that as kids... Candyman and scary movies in general were kind of exactly like the story of Candyman. Like all of those movies we weren't allowed to see, Nightmare on Elm Street, Candyman, all of them, um, were urban legends to us to a degree. Yeah, we you, all, yeah. We, we, you knew about Candyman, Candyman not even knowing about, not even seeing the movie. Because yeah. ki- kids would just, one kid would be able to watch it and then they would reiterate what they saw, which was this like stupid kid down version. Yep. And then by the end of it, you only just have, like, the basic lore. Like, you say his name in the bathroom mirror. And then he comes through with a clothes hook and kills you. And you're like, clothes hook? That doesn't really Gentrification. You're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the one smart kid in the playground. Um, but, yeah, I was really pleasantly surprised watching this as an adult. It's actually a really great urban legend movie or a movie based off an urban legend that created this really interesting movie that has so many cool layers to it. Mm-hmm. Um I don't want to get into too much of it so early on in the show, but I was not expecting the kind of mental health aspects of it and uh, the journey that Helen goes through as a character. It's pretty interesting. What's funny is like all of those, that stuff with Helen is kind of what I remember mostly. That and just like Tony Todd just having like the coolest goddamn voice. Yeah, and he just speaks in, like, he's not speaking in poetry, but it's basically poetry. Right? You get that from the opening moments, too. Like, what's blood if not foreshedding? Like, this, okay, we are in a different world here. And this, this <laughs> and guy. And his shoes don't make any sound. His shoes don't make any sound. That's <laughs> how you know he's a ghoul. He's not a ghoul. He seems pretty ghoulish. Sometimes. Just with the bees coming out of his 
Exposed rib cage. I feel like that was a conscious choice of his because he was stung by bees to death and he comes back and his face is perfect. Like he is a handsome devil. But then he opens his jacket and he's like, ha it's bees, surprise! <laughs> okay, I see what you mean. I think he made a conscious decision in like the makeup department. I'm like, yeah, it looked great! No, like he, I'm talking about Candyman as a, as a being. Yeah, um, he chose his form. I was gonna say, Jesus said, like, Candyman, you get to come back. But it's definitely not Jesus. No. Satan says, you know, you get to come back. You were really wronged. You get to be a new folklore thing. So how would you like to come back? We can do dapper and handsome, or we can do terrifying and scary B-man. Ooh, what if we um, got a little bit of both? Can I, can I have 90% dapper, handsome, and 20% bees, please? Yeah, like if you want to just like fix up my mug here, because this is a moneymaker, right? Uh, and then just trench coat me? I love that in that decision, he doesn't say, you know, it'd be nice, secondhand. <laughs> Yeah. I could just hold a hook. I mean, right, right. Satan's like, nah, that's, that's a deal breaker. Sorry there, bud. Okay, so. Uh, how, like, how bad of a death do you need for Satan to go like, that was a rough one, man. Uh, <laughs> we're going to we're gonna give you one, one back. You can kill uh, a person every decade. How's that sound? Is that all he kills? I honestly, so, so with Candyman and with a lot of Boogeyman, I think, but Candyman especially, and I fucking love it, uh, it's it's all about legacy, right? His name has to be remembered. Kind of like Freddy Krueger. But Freddy Krueger is, I mean, I guess they're both about revenge, but but uh, but Candyman, it's it's not like he he comes and he kills people just because they say his name in a mirror. It's because people are starting to forget like, to reinforce his legacy and his name and his story, he comes back to kill. Yeah, like, killing is just the means by which he retains his legendary status. Exactly. And so I think now that we have somebody like Virginia Madsen and, uh, and her friend Bernadette who are putting a thesis together and really poking holes at the Candyman mythos and mystery and trying to establish it as fake and just some oral history that people have strung together over decades he's chosen her because it'll help reinforce his legacy well and it's interesting too because it seems like at least in the present state of this movie he's kind of on easy street because as we learn throughout the film the local gangs have kind of adapted Candyman into um, creating almost their own little internal fortress. Like, they're taking advantage of the Candyman legend to create fear, and they're kind of using it as a blanket to, to both hide under and terrorize with. So Candyman kind of doesn't have to do his own terrorizing on his behalf. There's a gang doing it for him, mm -hmm. which is really interesting. It's almost like he gets to just sit back and let people fear and revere him. Yeah, and that's... That's probably also what helps tip Virginia Madsen into the, like, oh, no, people are just using Candyman to cover up their own murders, Well, right? I thought that, too, and I know Tony Todd is Candyman. Yeah. <laughs> but halfway through the movie, I was just like, oh, my God, this is really cool. Because this film touches on so many different aspects of what Candyman could be. Mm. Normally, a first film doesn't explore all of those avenues. And normally, when it does, it's too much. You're just yep. like, whoa. There's gang Candyman, there's mental illness Candyman, and then there's actual Candyman is a real legend thing. Candyman proper. Yeah, it's just really cool. So uh, Helen, she's a... Grad student? Grad student, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. She's not teaching anywhere. No, yeah, she's finishing her thesis. So mm -hmm. maybe she, she's going for a PhD or whatever. She's with a bunch of like 
rich with knowledge snob types Ugh. who are by the way that rich with knowledge snob type is bernard rose the director of the movie oh really <laughs> yeah i hated him well, i think you're supposed to right <laughs> and it's interesting that you've got you've got a bunch of classism in this movie but there's even classism at that table like yeah. he is the intellectual elite and she is so far below him because she doesn't have her phd clearly yet. you didn't read my article in 1992 on oh! the candy man legend <laughs> clearly you did not He's such a prick yeah Instead of just doing like standard surface level uh, report, her and Bernie, her, I guess, student colleague, you'd call her. Yeah, they're partners, yeah. Yeah, they want to go deeper into this Candyman legend. And so that takes them to kind of like the projects uh, where Candyman was born. Cabrini Green, as it's known. And they're basically following this particular murder, right? Yeah, the, I, th- I think they need to have one story to focus on. They can't just have like the general Candyman mythos. So they're they're going to use this one story that everybody attributes as a to Candyman, the, the origin or the yeah. the main kill or something. Yeah, but they're not <laughs> kind of like a podcast. Like they're not necessarily going out to to find the real killer, but they they're going to poke holes into the uh, assumed story that Candyman killed this woman. She's trying to posit that a real person did it by climbing through the mirror from one apartment to the next. Which was so cool when they did that reveal about how there's no, like, fire code wall in between the bathroom mirror and her own house where she's living, which grad student has no debt, not likely, but whatever. Yeah, she's with her dickhead professor husband. Are they married, though? I think so. Yeah, totally, because he introduces her as his wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. To mm. his girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. That whole movie, you're just like, you know he's cheating on her, that whole thing. And every time you see him, he's doing shady things. The yeah. boyfriend, not Candyman. Candyman's on the up and up. <laughs> uh, but uh, what Candyman's was I Candyman's literally getting consent from her this entire movie. He does. Right? He literally waits for consent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he kills her, like, her friends and stuff to do it, but, yeah, and he ruins yeah. her life. Okay. So, well, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to paint a picture of him as a nice guy i think he's nice i just mean it, it seems like he's treating virginia madsen nicer than her husband i mean that's got- also not true what am i talking oh, about uh, yeah uh, <laughs> let's let's okay so bathroom mirror she shows bernie that because her apartment i guess is like a refurbished version of the same building concept as cabrini green yeah it was originally intended as a housing project but then because of the skyline i guess they decided to Turned into condominiums. Uh, But it was the same building structure. So she finds out that she can literally punch through her medicine cabinet into the next apartment. And she thinks that that's the means by which the killer who killed this woman in Cabrini Green literally was able to just climb on through the apartment. Mm -hmm. And that's cool. Mm -hmm. For that alone, I think, is enough for me to love this movie. The idea of a killer coming through the window and not being a legend at all. Like, I would have been perfectly fine with that if there was no real Candyman and it was just a guy using... Um, the like low income housing project as his means of sneaking around and being this mythological figure. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. It's terrifying. And there's enough for because he, he, the door's not busted down. Like, how did he get in if nobody knows? Yeah, I thought it was really cool. Yeah, Tony Todd really doesn't show up for a little while. I think that's a smart choice because I think we do need to sort of go down these paths of oh, Candyman is just a story. 
Like we need to we we need to establish that as a possibility before we establish that Candyman does exist. Before we then also establish maybe it's all in Helen's head. A, a large portion of this movie is tailored to make us think that. I mean, this is no surprise to anybody that's seen it, obviously, but, like, we are supposed to, at some point, think that Candyman could potentially just be inside Helen's head. And yeah. she's gone crazy, and she is killing people for reasons. But, uh... Um, she's just lost it. She's just school-stressed. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, like, there is, there is obviously, like, The Shining, like, one key moment in the movie where uh, Candyman interacts with the real world that is impossible if he isn't real. And I think that's where he undoes the straps... On the psychiatrist. Or oh. he undoes the straps on, on Helen when she's in the psychiatrist's office. Yeah, but she she could have gotten out. There's... I don't know. Let's, let's assume you can't get out of those straps. I think of the of the threads of things. I think that's that's pretty nitpicky, John. That's nitpicky? I think it is. Okay, well, I mean, if I needed... We could maybe say, given that she's an unreliable narrator, that the psychiatrist came over and undid her straps for some reason. Then she killed the psychiatrist and got out. But in her mind, it's... I think we should walk up to that part, though. Okay. Why she's in the psychiatrist's office. Because that, for me, was the biggest turnaround in the movie when um, she finally meets Candyman after she's been searching so we have this false candy man where she's um she's poking around too much she ends up meeting a gang who've adopted candy man and one of the gang members is portraying candy man and they beat her up in the gross bathroom oh the grossest bathroom bathroom. i can't believe i tried to gloss over that no but that when she kicks open that final stall and then there's the arrow pointing down Where is that? Is it? Does it lead to his lair that's in the apartment building? I bet it does. Eh, maybe. Pretty cool. So and it's filled with why bees. does she go back again, though? Why does she go back to the apartment building again? Yeah. After getting beaten up, she goes back. Don't actually think she or goes maybe back. She, no, because she no. Candyman is in the parking garage. Candyman appears to her in the parking garage. And that's when his shoes are making no sound. <laughs> so uh, there's actually something I really like about that scene, and it's it's partly a small impossibilities thing that you always love pointing out. Um, we see Helen walking toward her car. Then we see just a pair of shoes and a long coat. Definitely Candyman following her to her car. But when he starts talking to her, um, and we have like that super awesome echoey voiceover from Tony Todd. He's not behind her where you would expect further down the parking garage. He's actually on an adjacent wall on the other side, which I think is just like really cool camera techniques, how he's sort of surrounding her to a degree. I never got that. I just got I know that- I kept trying to show it to you. and You're like, oh, I don't see what's so special about this. Because maybe he just appeared in that spot and he's always been walking towards her car where she's been walking and he's been. But he's up against it. a wall is the thing. Mm-hmm. If that were the case, based on how we're watching Helen, we would see him across the way walking side by side with her just a few feet away. Either way, Candyman finally appears, whether or not it's miraculous. <laughs> and her dialogue in that scene is great, too, because, you know, you you doubted me, so I had to appear. I don't remember the exact words, unfortunately. Any moments of Helen's character all the way up to this point before she's even meet, uh, meet, met him, there's... There's this really interesting, at first I didn't really like it, but now I'm kind of appreciating it. She almost gets washed over with this ethereal trance. Mm. 
or it's like a sexual thing. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, there's like some blocking on her eye, so she has like that light going. She glows like a Hollywood starlet because yeah. she's she's being lit in this like hazy glow. And maybe it's because everybody's smoking in every single scene that it's always so fucking right? hazy. Um, there's so much chain smoking in this movie. It's got to mean something that we're just not picking up on. It, there's so much smoking. Like, And every time you shoot on her, her hand is just flicked off with a cigarette. And you're just like, why yeah. are you always smoking? It just must be like a different age now because nobody. I don't know. It seems it seems so over the top. Can you imagine the elegance of this film would be completely lost though if everybody had vape pens? Um, yeah, she's always completely, like, entranced. Like, even when she was at that mean dinner with those mean intellectuals. Once, yeah, once they start explaining the Candyman she story She just gets her. lost in it. Yeah. And that's really interesting because at the end you find out she's kind of a mythical figure herself. Or she's kind of, like, his right hand. And that she herself could have been this legendary figure all along. It's almost like this Dracula story. And she's Mina. So, in being Mina, she's always been this person kind mm-hmm. of thing is why it's this story is always so entrancing to her and maybe why she's gone so far into discovering this story is like it was always supposed to go down this way yeah and i i, I definitely think you're right there is a strong romantic relationship between the two of them but not not like lovers though you know like there there's a romance in the roles that they're trying to play i think like victim and and murderer yeah like they've definitely romanticized him claiming her because he, yeah. well, he even says like his whole iconic line is be my victim right exactly and uh, just like he wants her to or he at least he's waiting for her to give herself over to him but it's different than what he does with every everybody else because he kills a bunch of people in this movie yeah he kills a person in this movie that's that's true Two people. Well, you did a cold open. But I think it's it's all to get her to a point where she's willing to give up. Yeah, but he's not asking them to be his victim. They just be... He's None asking... of those murders are attributed to Candyman, and that's the idea. And I think he needs to get her back to Cabrini Green, because when it's revealed that she... After that parking garage scene, which is fucking great, and we have a ton more shots of her just being hypnotized by Candyman, she's like, I gotta go. I'm in danger. But she's not running away whatsoever. She wakes she up. She loves him. She, sure, she loves him. But she's she definitely does. hypnotized by him. But she wakes up in Anne-Marie's apartment. That is the best scene in the whole movie. Because I was completely blindsided. I had no idea what was going on. And I didn't know any of his motivations at this point. I didn't know what Candyman was after. I didn't know why he didn't just take her. Mm. And for her to wake up in a pool of blood with a woman screaming, a dead dog, a baby that I thought was dead to me. I thought that baby was dead in the crib. And I was like, my hands were over my mouth for that scene. I was like, oh my God, Candyman, what did you do? We trusted you. Nope, it was all Helen all along. Oh, man. That scene is crazy. Yeah, no, that scene's nuts, and I, I, I really do think he's just trying to, to break her down and get to her, get her to rock bottom, and to really discredit that person who is trying to prove that Candyman doesn't exist. Well, and I also think too, it's, and it's going to be really interesting to see how they explore this in the, the modern remake that they're doing. Mm-hmm. They're showing her a world that she's not 
familiar with. Like as this upstanding high-class white woman, she gets really degraded from here on in the film. She's not treated well by the police. Mm -hmm. She's asked to strip. That's probably one of my other favorite scenes when right after she's picked up by the police and she's hysterical. She has no idea what's happened. She's, she's just asking to take a shower. She's covered in blood and the, the woman police officer is giving her nothing. And yeah. that scene is actually pretty long and I think it's just to show her being degraded. Sure. And she's asked to take off her shirt and she does and she peels it off and it's covered in blood and her bra is covered in blood and the blood is starting to dry and it's stuck to her a little bit. Mm -hmm. She has to take off her bra. She has to hold her breasts to keep, you know, to keep some dignity. And the cop is asking her to lift each breast to make sure she's not hiding anything under there. Even though, like, she owns a condo in the up upside of town with her professor husband and, like, this isn't something that this woman would do yeah and she's asking to speak to the cop that she's on first name basis with mm -hmm. and the, co the the cop that's um booking her does not give a shit and has asked her to take her underwear because she's gonna have to bend down and cough like, and he shouldn't anyway because as far as he knows she just killed a dog and possibly a baby right like i i, I see what you're saying he, i don't think he has to give her any fucking credit for anything but it's not a role she's used to having. She's used to being able to walk in and say like, oh, I got hurt in the project. Please save me. <laughs> and and they're all super happy for it. They're just like, oh, thank God you're the one that got hit with a hook. If it had been anybody else, we wouldn't be able to take him to trial. Yeah, and the, well, and the first time that happened, she's all kind of upset about it because she's like, there's stuff been happening here all along. And as soon as one white lady gets punched in the eye, they're arresting people. But now she's being maybe charged with murder. And I think she wants some privilege. Like she yeah. <laughs> wants to talk to the cop, right? Yeah. It's kind of an interesting experience because Candyman, he's trying to ruin her life to the point that she will succumb to whatever he wants. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's interesting in a storytelling way to show this character going through that journey. Can I ask you a quick question? Yes. Do you think Candyman exists? No, okay, let me, let me rephrase that because it sounds like what I'm asking you is whether or not Helen is Candyman. Yeah, I... And that's not what I'm asking. What I'm asking is, that backstory that Professor Douchebag McGee gives, is that even true? Is Candyman a real-life person who was murdered in this horrible way, uh, whose ashes were spread across Cabrini Green and now is coming back and trying to, to keep his legacy of blood? Or, like New Nightmare, is it literally just a story that people assumed were, was true and kept telling it to each other until it became true? Like, is Candyman a construct of that oral mythology that's built by the people who are also scared of it? But that's the whole point of the film is you're supposed to come away with the is. The answer is, is he? To answer it, I think, takes away from the film. The fact that it could all be in Helen's head. Candyman could be this creation of him being murdered over loving um the woman that he loved or he could be created from the rate like he's he's the amber of the ashes and was created after the fact all of those things are possible and i think they're all great and the fact that they are all possible is what makes this movie great so yeah. i'm gonna not answer it um while while you were saying that i just remembered one little thing that i think really tips it into like a definitive answer right like and you gotta just kind of ignore all the sequels that came from it because i'm pretty sure in the next one we open with seeing Candyman's death like, we see all of it, him getting his oh, hand like cut off original. and everything. Yeah, but I, I think it's super intentional that we don't have flashback moments where... In this film. Yeah, in this film, where we see Tony Todd as uh, as, as Candyman being, being killed. I'm almost positive, though, at the end of the movie, the little boy 
whose name I can't remember, is it Jake? Sees Candyman in the fire um, that Helen and Candyman are fighting in at the end of the movie where she crawls out and delivers the baby. We see, like, the skeletal remains sort of, like, in their death throes. Just that little boy, though. Mm-hmm. Which I think is is really like, yeah, sure, everybody has the Candyman story, but like the fact that this little boy witnesses Candyman is also what's going to help his legacy continue. Yeah, and one thing about the funeral pyre, uh, or the big pyre, yeah. I kind of love that, that it was there the whole film. Yes, yes, and yes. that, because it kind of puts, it's another piece of evidence that Candyman has been planning this thing to go the way it did the entire time Mm -hmm. because they walk past it in an earlier scene and Helen asked the little boy she's like what is that and she's like oh it's for the the party it's for the big party but it's this no explanation it's this like sacrificial wicker man fire right and as soon as they see what's going on those kids immediately grab the gasoline and torches and they go out there yeah and it's not like they're they're really planning for it but they know they have to, and that's what they're supposed to do. Yeah, go burn Candyman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is just... that is actually like my favorite part of this entire movie is is that that is there at the beginning. We establish it. The kid. Oh, it's for the party. We don't say what the party's for. It comes back at the end. It's like super important to yeah, this story. Yeah, because nobody's mad. Nobody's like, oh, that's for the block party next weekend because that that fire was always intended for when it was lit. I think. Oh yeah. It's fated to have been the fire for which. Uh, Candyman and his bride were to die. Yeah, and like without that moment, without how that all played out, we wouldn't have this procession line of disciples coming to Helen's grave at the end of the movie because they are Candyman's followers. Like her death is important and their belief in Candyman and will also be her enduring legacy too. Like she will actually be remembered. And it's a, a very... And what, oh fuck! What's that line that he has? Like it's 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 an astounding thing to to not have to be. Oh fuck! I can't. Oh, it is a good line. Every goddamn thing he says in this movie is incredible. Oh yeah, and he said and he says something too, like to exist on the whispers of others and like exactly to, to, yeah, be, to be not, the writing oh, on the wall. Fuck. And you're just like fuck! You're making death sound wonderful, <laughs> right? And that's that's the thing. He is the warm embrace. Like that's why it's so. Uh, alluring to become his victim. Like, just, I cannot imagine Eddie Murphy in this role. Did you know that? Did you know that they were trying to get Eddie Murphy, but they couldn't afford him? Wow. It would have been so different. Can you, (laughs) it would have been nuts. Wow. It'd be a really weird, like, I I could understand why Eddie Murphy would have wanted to make that decision in, like, early 1992. That would have been such a strange thing for his, for him to do in his career. But we would have lost the legacy that is Candyman with Tony Todd. I think he's the to- fucking perfect person. I think Tony Todd man. is perfect because he's kind of dreamy. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? He's really tall. He's handsome. He's got a good jawline, but he's also really good at being creepy. Like his yeah. voice resonates and he's got a really low register, but like he's still kind of dreamy. Except for when he has bees in his mouth. Right. Every other real time. Real <laughs> fucking bees. All of the bees in this movie. 100% uh, real. Some, some scary bees. That's actually one of the reasons he took the movie too, because He's like, none of this stuff has ever been done on screen. And I want to be one of the people who's there to help bring it to life. Because also, like, people are going to see it. It's a great it's a great script. It's a great movie. He was trying to find his own Phantom of the Operas, is how he uh, was describing it. But none of those B sequences, they'd, they'd never shot anything like that. And to be the person on screen responsible, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. for it, was a big selling feature for him. All of the Bs used in the movie uh, were roughly 12 hours old. 
So you could say that they were... Baby bees. Baby bees uh, artisanally created for this film. Like, they were specifically birthed, I guess. you'd. Like, what... They probably had, like, no stingers or something. Well, it's not that they don't have stingers. It, they do definitely have stingers, but they are less likely to use them. Oh, because they're too young? They're too They're too young to necessarily get aggressive. They're just still exploring the world. You know? <laughs> I'm just a little baby bee. Where's mom? Why am I in a mouth? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and apparently Virginia Madsen said it was it was really weird to film because one, she's allergic to bees, not deathly. They did. She's more deathly allergic to wasps. A prop Virginia for a few scenes, I could tell. Could you? Yeah. Okay. Well, there's uh, they they load them up with pheromones too. She's like, so it's really weird because they're furry, and you notice that right away. But they're also all in love with you. And it took longer to get them off than it did to shoot the scenes. Like, they would do really quick shots, and then they would have these this tiny little, uh, like, bee vacuum that sort of sucks them off. Um, politely, <laughs> oh, you know, and politely. Nice, nicely. It doesn't kill them or hurt them. But yeah, Tony Todd, uh, throughout the entire franchise, had a clause written into his contract that he got a $100 bonus every time he was stung. Sorry, a $1,000 bonus. I was like, $100? Yeah. Like, that's shitty. That's, you not, that's a, nothing. a nice bottle of wine with that. Yeah, well, you could. But, uh, yeah, $1,000 for every bee sting. And over the course of several films, he's been stung 23 times. Wow. Yeah. A few of which were in his mouth for this <gasps> movie. Yeah, of course. Oh. Yeah. That sucks. That does suck. Wow. Yeah, I guess there's no other way to film bees in your mouth in the 80s than by putting bees in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I didn't think he ate the bees, but... So another scene that's really good and really plays on the is he real, isn't he... Is, is it every she... scene in the movie? I have Pretty a feeling much. it's every scene no, in the movie. No, when she's first being admitted into the psych ward after they yeah. think she's killed Bernie because Bernie also gets uh, the sharp end of the hook. Mm-hmm. Uh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he descends down on her like floating from the ceiling and it's a really fun shot because then he just like floats under the girl. Yeah, well, I was going to say it's also kind of a funny shot because he just like, whoop, like yeah, hides yeah. underneath. Like because the order are coming in but the psychiatrist in that scene where the psychiatrist dies shows her the footage on four unnecessary television on four tvs which is like why do you have those what you one would have sufficed i assume he's got cameras set up for multiple rooms but, but he's it like, does I'm gonna put them all just to reiterate the fact that she's nuts yeah and she they show the footage again of her in that scene and what she says and whatever and there's no candy man in the footage which you're like dracula can't be picked up by cameras <laughs> but, <laughs> but i mean it's really cool because it does play on that at that moment i think she re- thinks she's done it Oh, yeah. Or she's questioning. Which is so great because seconds later, Candyman Candy appears. There, yeah. yeah, and kills the doctor, unleashes her. But I think she's still a little hesitant. She's still not sure if she's conjured Candyman because when she goes back to her apartment and her husband is not her husband anymore and with his student and they're painting uh, and they're packing yeah. up all of her shit. Also, not to, not to mention the fact that it's been like two or three months. Yeah. She's just been drugged out and doesn't even know. Like, because to us, it feels like the following day she goes to see her psychiatrist. And to her, it feels like the following day. Oh, that's nuts. Can you imagine? Well, I mean, there's a lot going on. But, like, let's let's say you haven't had a murder or anything. And all of a sudden, you wake up. And uh, it's been a month because you've just been drugged out in some mental institution. Yeah, it- uh, I think it was really cool, though, in that scene when she's confronting her husband. And they're basically trying to inch towards the phone to call the psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And... 
Helen is so unhinged and it's one because she's witnessed so many murders and two because she might be going crazy but you see it in her eyes in a couple seconds where she's full of conviction and then she's a little worried that she is actually doing it but then she's full of conviction again because she's also yeah. like crashing and burning like her husband is the only thread she has left Candyman has killed everything else yeah and he's already cut off that tie like he's he wants nothing to do with her anymore because she is kind of cuckoo bananas at this point like he's he thinks she's a convicted murderer and she's also crazy. Yeah. But one thing I don't get is that Helen character is really headstrong. She's very brave. She's very confident. She's a very bold character. Mm. And when things start to go wrong, she's calling for her husband the whole time. Anytime anything goes bad, she's really dependent on him. And it's a good point. It, it's probably to create that last final thread. Like when we find out he's been cheating on her and he's creating this other life with this other student. I just don't really love how dependent she was on him. But maybe that's because she is this faded character and she knows she's supposed to be like soulmated to something mm. and she may have attached that onto him. Like she's supposed to be a soulmate. Okay, I see what you're saying. You know what I so, mean? So yeah, because like you wouldn't necessarily go through your life assuming the person that's going to catch you in your fall is a murderer with a hook for a hand. Yeah, you, you don't expect think, it to oh, be a... Oh, it's this like, guy who, is my, who I think I'm married to. Yeah, yeah, I'm supposed to... Like she's had this feeling of like I need to belong mm. to something or I need to be a part of a, a duo. Yeah. Um, Because at the end you find out that she, she is also on the wall. She is also this legendary figure. And I she, fucking love the end of this movie. She basically becomes... Bloody Mary. Yeah. It's so great too, right? Like when you think, who the fuck is gonna look in a mirror and say Candyman five times? What is the point? But we get to the end and this shit husband, like Trevor, is just in the bathroom lamenting over all that he's done and, well, couldn't he have helped her at some point? And now that he's he's got his like young toy wife girlfriend who hates thing. cooking dinner like oh my god she's <laughs> <laughs> she's in that chopper this asshole's in the bathroom i'm just gonna chop let celery like the an salad ass. with me and he's like no and she's like fucking throwing the beef <laughs> yeah she's like cutting up chunks of meat and tossing it raw fucking into a salad whatever. <laughs> <laughs> see how you like it but when he's just in the bathroom and and, and he's overcome with emotion at this point he's like oh helen oh helen helen like she's dead at this point she's, she's totally yeah, she she's, burned in the yeah, pot She's, you've seen the movie. Um, <laughs> it's like that scene kind of makes sense where he's just sort of in this like spiral of regret saying her name over and over. Like that to me is believable where you would conjure that character by saying their name more than once other than just like a teenager daring another teenager to do it. That, that takes it to like this really raw emotional place for that myth I think is, is brilliant. And uh, when she appears behind him in the mirror it's, it's such a good final moment to end on. Also, another point, though. When she appears, she's mythical figure status. She chose to came... Candyman came back, dab her top half, bees in the torso. Sure. She comes back full third-degree burns. Like, her head is burnt. She's coming back with the full, gory, bald wig cap thing, which is interesting. She decided to be scary. I think she's coming back for whatever would scare him the most. I guess that's true. Yeah. I think maybe in that instance, she's like, look what you did, fucker. Yeah. And I, honestly, I know that this is how he like, pretty well always appears. But when you think about Helen assuming Candyman is just a real person who uses the moniker Candyman, why not appear as a real person and then shatter her reality by showing mm. her that he has this actual hook and no fucking insides and he's just breathing bees. Yeah. It's pretty great. It was. It was a really good movie. Yeah. 
I'm really happy that I didn't revisit this movie until I was like an adult horror fan. Mm -hmm. I think if I had to watch this when I was 12, there would have been so much lost. Yeah, I, I think that's probably why I didn't really attach to it as a kid. It was always on TV for some reason. Like it was heavily edited, but um, but it was on a lot and I would occasionally catch it late at night and it just never stuck with me. And I, I, I'm sure I watched it from beginning to end at some point, but all of my memories of this movie are like watching it in, in fragmented pieces. And I do have a lot more memories of uh, Farewell to the Flesh. Is that what it's called? The second one? I remember, I remember seeing the scene where he gets killed in Pilgrim Times a lot. <laughs> I think as a kid, I just wanted that. Like, ooh, show me where Candyman is created. But ignoring the rest of the franchise and how it really solidifies that, I love, like you were saying, the game that this movie plays on on Candyman possibly being one of several different things. Yeah, and it's it's a really fun take on a story that's so familiar because it is an urban legend and it's based off so many things and but it's a new it's a grown-up take on it. Yeah. It's the it is the Dracula of the Nightmare on Elm Street yeah, franchise. Yeah, it's like a quintessential boogeyman story for the modern world. Yeah, and it is like the the grown-up modern-day Phantom of the Opera. You, yeah. You get this kind of gothic horror story set, this modern-day scenario, with a story we're all a little bit familiar with. Mm -hmm. It's it's really well done. Yeah, it's great. If I could uh, assume what they're going to do with the new one, uh, I would think it's going to be more like Helen's current apartment building. I think what's going to happen is we're going to have an apartment building that used to be a housing project that's been updated into to rich condos and that's where people start like that's where Candyman still lives and hunts mm. is in that updated gentrified building that's my guess yeah i, I don't know how we're going to update it for today because like this kind of has that era of like the silence of the lambs formula where you have this a little bit it's almost like a cop drama kind of thing like yeah. a mystery being unfolded and we don't really do that so much nowadays so i don't know if they're going to do that whole revealing the crimes and stuff with the with the neighbor lady and her baby and i don't know if that's all gonna play out the same because mm -hmm. i don't know what that formula looks like in 2018 you know what i mean yeah so how would you rate uh i'm going to give Candyman a three and a half out of four wicked my only down point was for bernie's after death makeup it's the 90s you know like eh. And uh, maybe it's just because she looked a little too pale. Yeah, they they were just using some opaque makeup. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm also giving Candyman a 3.5 out of 4. I like this movie a lot more than I thought I did. Not nuts about Philip Glass's score. Sorry, guys. Everybody. Whenever I ask about, like, favorite scores on Twitter, uh, that, that one always comes up. And I totally understand why. I think it's cool. I think it evokes that older era gothic romance mythology that the movie's going for. But I have a problem with choirs. I just don't like choirs. I don't know what it is. I didn't notice the score. <laughs> okay. It is very good. It's minimalist. It's cool. It's repetitive, but just like, eh, the vocal stuff gets me. All right, moving on. We're going to talk about Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. In the weirdest left-hand turn ever. No, it's not. From the director of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Adam and Barbara are... Ghosts. What's the good of being a ghost if you can't frighten people away? Their house is being haunted by the living. Maybe the house could use a little remodeling. And they can't scare them into leaving. They're dead, it's a little late to be neurotic. So they're calling on Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice! Who's no ordinary ghost. Yeah, you don't want his help. Can you be scary? What do you think of this? Ah! 
Now, the party's over. You want somebody out of the house? I want to get somebody out of your house. <laughs> but the fun has just begun. It's showtime. Learn to throw your voice for your friends. Fun and party. Not bad. This is amazing. Want a cigarette? Oh, no, thank you. Oh, yeah, here I come, baby. He's guaranteed to put some life... Attention, keyboard shoppers. ...in your afterlife. Michael Keaton is Beetlejuice. I'm the ghost with the most, babe. Beetlejuice from 1988, directed by Tim Burton. Beetlejuice is currently sitting at a 7.5 out of 10. 100 on, out of 10. Yeah, 100 out of 10, also known as 7.5 out of 10 on IMDb. 100 out of 4 on Ebert. 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. 3.8 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Whoa. And 2 out of 4 from Roger Ebert. <gasps> no! Which I think is a perfect jumping off point for us, because I, th- I we both love this movie. Yeah, full disclosure, this is my favorite film. Yeah, you know... Of all time. I was, I've been thinking about it a lot this week. I don't know that there's many movies I like more than Beetlejuice. Or movies that I've seen more than Beetlejuice. Which is why I think... We're going to have a really hard time fucking talking about this movie. No, I think Roger Ebert's review is, is the perfect place to jump off. I'm oh. just going to read you the last paragraph. I don't want to hear so it. So he does talk a lot about how great the set design is and like the world. And he super loves the Maitlands. Like he absolutely loves the beginning of this movie and how charming they are and like this this tiny little village and all these little characters that have their own lives and then he just like shits on it from there on no. yeah like he was just like i really was hoping that we'd be in this little peewee herman's adventure world that would have been the smartest thing to do but instead we go to this fucked up place where all these people are whatever um one of the problems is keaton as the exorcist Nearly unrecognizable behind pounds of makeup, he prounces around playing Beetlejuice as a mischievous and vindictive prankster. But his scenes don't seem to fit with the other action, and his appearances are mostly a nuisance. It's also a shame that Baldwin and Davis, as the ghosts, have to spend most of their time playing tricks on Catherine O'Hara and Jeffrey Jones and winning the sympathy of their daughter. I would have been more interested if the screenplay had preserved their sweet romanticism and cut back on the slapstick. Mic drop, I guess. Nah, I'm with, I don't agree with anything he said there. That's the whole point of the movie is the juxtaposition between this world that, that the Maitlands are thrust into. Yeah, we've we've got this this quiet, sincere, romantic, small town life that they have. And then this this modern home away from home that the Dietzes bring. And Beetlejuice is this chaotic force that has the ability to push it one way or the other while simultaneously destroying them both. Like, I think we have two worlds that are trying to coexist. And well, and then this third variable yeah. that nobody understands. And that's the best part about it yeah. is that in Beetlejuice, and this is why I love that there was never a prequel or a sequel, as much as I would love a Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. <laughs> um, I'm so happy that they didn't ever get to expand and Hollywoodize mm-hmm. this franchise because how little we see of the afterlife is what makes it so perfect. It's such a strange movie. Because Explain Saturn to me. Like, why is this? Why is Saturn a, like a thing in this movie at all? It's so great. It and, is great, but and, and it gl- doesn't need explanation like yeah. whatsoever. And the glimpses you get of 
the afterlife, it's wild and untamed, but then bureaucratic. Yeah, and there, there's a great call to it when Otho's just like, oh, you know what happens to people that commit suicide, don't you? In the afterlife... They become civil servants. They become civil servants, yeah. That's great. We know that because uh, the beauty pageant queen committed suicide and she's just like playing out her days yeah. at the reception desk. and Juno's throat slit. Yeah. You uh, think Juno committed suicide? She had to have. She's... I guess so. She's a civil servant. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's great... why she's so passive aggressive. That's why they're all passive aggressive, which is exactly what civil servants are like. Well, and even to the, the copier guy, he's flattened. Like, with tire tracks? Because he definitely jumped in front of a, a vehicle or oh, a yeah. train. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the craziest thing when you start to look and try and figure out how everybody killed themselves. It's nuts. But you're right. And, like, the Maitlands are our way into that world. So why would we ever get explanations? Yeah, and then, well, that's the point, too, is that they they only get a glimpse of it because they only get so many limited mm. chances to meet with their caseworker in, I think, their residential haunting period is like 120 years or something. Yeah, something crazy like that. I'm having a really hard time trying to figure out where to start. There's there's nothing about this movie that I don't love. Everything about it is a great decision. All of the characters are perfectly cast. Fucking Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin in this movie are so lovely. And they're perfect. They're perfect for they're each so other. They're so cute. And just the moments too, like they, they're doing the wallpaper, they're taking their week, their week's vacation just to like fix up their new house that yeah. they're in love with. And then there's the Jane, the stupid nosy oh, realtor. Jane. And then um, the scene where they discover that they die on the, the Winter River Bridge is... <laughs> Sorry, you know, like, it's my favorite movie. I get to do things like that. Yeah, you get to say exactly <laughs> the name of the bridge. Yes. It's such a great scene, like, with the little rocking horse in the mirror, and he can't read the word deceased. It's it's perfect. It's wonderful. Yeah, there's nothing wrong about this entire movie. Um, and the score, like, especially in that scene where they, they realize that they are dead. And he reads the handbook. Oh, the handbook for the recently diseased. And deceased. Yeah, and the music (laughs) swells back up with it. The music is a character in this movie. Uh, I know we've talked about it before, but on the Blu-ray edition of the movie, you have an option of watching it with just the Danny Elfman score and no other audio track. And um, surprisingly, still fun to watch. I mean, if you know every line of the movie, it's great. And, uh, you know, if you're also a person who doesn't really pay attention to score too much... That's a great time to watch it. But I think it's impossible to ignore the score in the movie. There's some really interesting choices with the music, too. To to juxtapose, like, this fun, kind of dark and whimsical score, you have Harry Belafonte music yeah. throughout the entire movie. Oh, it's so great. And his that I think that's probably why they wanted to do Beetlejuice Co.'s Hawaiian. Because, because of Harry Belafonte? Yeah, because mm. there's such a tropical, warm element to the music, and it's so fun and kind of s- silly. Yeah. It's strange how perfect it works. Yeah. I don't know what it is about Adam um, that makes him such a Harry Belafonte fan. Because when you look at him, you wouldn't think so, right? Like, small town guy, owns a hardware store, wears plaid shirts tucked into his khakis. Favorite band? Harry Belafonte. Because he's listening to it all the time while he's working on his models. And then when they decide that they're going to scare an entire party full of people, that's what they go for. (laughs) But it's perfect. Also, this, I don't know if you guys have noticed, and maybe you have, and if you have, good on you. This last time watching it is the first time that Kim and I ever noticed that. I'm like, what did we notice? All of the party, uh, all the attendees of the party are actually singing along to Deo 
by Harry Belafonte. Like, not loudly, but they're kind of quietly sort of grumbling along to it. And Catherine O'Hare is great in that scene. She's not singing, though, which is funny because we know she can sing because she's Sally in Nightmare Before Christmas. That's a very good point. And Jeffrey Jones, if you're paying attention to him in that scene, he's... He's made this choice. Uh, Who's where Jeffrey Jones? Jeffrey Jones' dad. He is uh, Charles Dietz. Oh, okay. Um, y- you can pay attention. He's acting as though somebody's moving his jaw for him. Like, he's not singing along, but there's, like, the, the ghost of Barbara Maitland just, like, moving his mouth up and down to try and get him to sing the words. It's pretty great. Yeah, and the, the body movements in that scene are great. Like, where they're all doing the, the hand movements and stuff. And then the shrimp hand. I mean, come on, that's, like, fucking crazy. The shrimp hand's brilliant. That should be just a costume that we do one year, just the shrimp hands. Like, everybody's done the Maitlands with the big distended mouth. Distended? Stretched out mouths? Yeah. And, like, sunken eyes and stuff. But I, I want I want somebody who does just the just the shrimp hand. I can do that next year. <laughs> you have to wear a table on you, though, for it to make sense. I'll, like, come out of a bowl. That's perfect. So, I mean, uh, obviously we've paired this with Candyman because you have to say Beetlejuice's name three times to get him to appear. Uh, I really think it's weird that when they say his name the first time, they go down into the model. Yeah, but they're going for a meeting, I <laughs> that, think. That's true. They have to book him. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, like it's, a, it's a consultation, right? They're, they're coming in. They just want to make sure they're a fit for each other. But I love that he just keeps edging his way into their lives Well, and he's point. Because he's he's found them. Yeah. He was touring the back pages of like the Afterlife Weekly. This is the best fucking part. He says, better look at the business section. <laughs> Opens it up to the obituaries. Jesus, I love this movie. And that's one of my favorite scenes because it's the only moment where you hear him from like his lair. Yeah. Um, which is really explored in the cartoon. Beetlejuice hangs out in that like um, ethereal layer thing that he's in, which doesn't really exist in time or space in the other parts of the, the movies because he's basically like banished. He's he's not. Yeah, he's been kicked out of everywhere. Yeah, like he's not working with the bureaucracy. No, he's recently taken up residence in your tiny model well and did he not he used to work for juno or, or with, with juno? juno she yeah it was her partner which means beetlejuice probably killed himself, killed himself. Mm. how do you think beetlejuice killed himself knowing the color and like he's stuff. rotten though like i don't know died on laughing gas buried alive mm. <laughs> how do you bury yourself alive i guess I it's possible know. i don't know um poison I don't know. He he might just be like a like a dibbick or something. What Maybe if, okay. he wasn't a, ever a person. Maybe not. You know what? I'm gonna go ahead and say he would have been classified on earthly ground, uh, this plane, as a misadventure. <laughs> he technically a suicide, but I mean, like it's oh, it's maybe. not his fault that he couldn't breathe underwater while he was drunk. He just forgot, and then for <laughs> a moment, he he just lost it all. I guess. Uh, so technically a suicide. Technically not. It seems like he's a partier. Uh, yeah, I think that's how it happened. I think it was an accident. So he identifies the Maitlands, and he stakes out in Adam's miniature. He makes commercials for them. Uh, and he he's... eats the occasional fly. <laughs> and it's it's his goal to get them to hire him to uh, do some work, because he just wants to create mischief. He just wants to cause mischief in his 16 minutes of screen time. Yeah, because it's not like he really gets anything. Oh, I guess he's he's trying to get back into the real world because if he's banished from the afterlife we'll Mm -hmm. call it and he's obviously dead so he can't join the real world he's he's a man with no country he's got nowhere to go so i think his goal no matter what 
in having the Maitlands hire him is to somehow get tricked or is to somehow trick somebody into marrying him so he can be alive again. Which is perfect because Edgar Allan Poe's daughter. (laughs) Right. It's funny, too, because when he first pops up out of the um, when he first pops up out of the coffin, if you think about his goal being, I got to marry somebody to get out of here. Uh, he immediately asks Adam, like, what are my chances with Barbara? Like, how's your marriage? What's it going? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it's not like he can get anywhere by marrying Barbara, but it's just like that he's so singularly focused on, like, this is the mission. We got to do this. But he's also just, like, the the epitome of every kind of creep you don't want to be set in a room with. Like, the moment he is on screen, they look like they are backed into a corner and they can't get the fuck out. Yeah, because he is a total creep, but he's fun. He's a huge creep, yeah. But you're right, yes, he is only on screen for like 16 minutes, 14 minutes, something crazy like that. Just nuts. He's the title character of the movie. He's what everybody remembers. He's who we all quote. He's barely in it. And Ebert hated him. I think it's because he was just like, oh, this is a nice small town ghost movie. And then it just became this like zany neon green. I'm all about that neon green, though. Like, so about that neon green. There is... I I don't know what it is. So much of this movie is just like part of my fucking DNA. Like the green light coming through the brick wall door that they make. Oh, it's so cool. The the spider crawling on the top of the roof at the very beginning. Like that alone is just like such a great fucking image to me. Uh, And just like a perfect summation of the movie. Let's, Let's talk about some things maybe that we've noticed like the billionth time seeing this movie. Stuff that I never really paid attention to. There is this genius shot where Delia is, Delia? Lydia is climbing up into the attic for the very first time. She's gotten the skeleton key from Jane. She wants to go see what's up in in behind that locked door. And as she's going up, there are guys removing all that wallpaper that Barbara spent so much time putting on. Oh, so good. Yeah, and they're steaming it off, and that steam is billowing out into the staircase where she's going up in the attic, and she's just walking up essentially through smoke. It just looks so perfectly gothic but it's just a modern regular everyday thing that is is just being tilted slightly to get our sort of surreal macabre moment i mean then of course you have the green coming out under the door but right (laughs) and see but that's because barbara and adam are going through the door at that point and that's how she meets beetlejuice and she ultimately calls him out and then he becomes the banister snake and yeah um banister snake so good (laughs) We're here for your daughter, Chuck. Oh, so good. Yeah, everything about it. Another really fun thing that I noticed, uh, probably like the 400th time watching it, is when Delia is doing her dinner or whatever. I think they're just having Chinese food. I think it's when they're having Chinese food, yeah. Um, She's so otsy fotsy. Her (laughs) hair is tied up with like a shoulder length glove, and like the little fingers. fingers of the glove are part of her hair accessory. And it's just like this fun, whimsical. Just the, like, revealing thing about her character. Yeah, it's really weird. They are very, very New York. I guess she is. Yeah, I don't know how he convinced her to move to this place in the middle of nowhere. Maybe he thought... Maybe their reputations were tarnished or something. Like, maybe he did a bad business deal like, and they're, yeah, like, hiding he got, out like, or something. Yeah. He just did something to ruin his reputation. Like, he got fired spectacularly. Yeah. But it seems like he has sort of... Not run his career into the ground, but... All of his business connections think that he's a putz, which is what Robert Goulet calls him when he hangs up with him. And it's funny because everybody in her professional career thinks the exact same about her, too. She's washed up because she's, well, she's, I think, a stay-at-home mom that, one, didn't have her own kids Mm -hmm. because Lydia's 
her stepdaughter. Yeah. And she does art and she's not great at it. No, not <laughs> at all. It's very interpretive. It's all about image, right? And Otho is the exact same way. It's just two people that say the things they are. And as long as people believe the things they say they are, they are those things. Like, Otho has done every job possible. But he's he's just somebody who's like, yeah, I could be an interior designer. Hire me. He's just an entourage. That's all he is. That's his job. Yeah. He shows up. He he costs a lot of money. And at the end of the day, he, he gives them a bill. And they're supposed to say thank you a thousand times. <laughs> Who's your favorite character? in My the... favorite character. In the whole film. You get to pick a minor and a major character. A minor and a major character. Oh, that's very hard. Damn, that's hard. I'm trying to think of, like, really minor characters. My favorite minor character. I know. I know who it is. Okay. It's the old barber at the beginning of the movie sitting in front of his <gasps> oh, shop. Oh, that's it's like, a good minor character. It's like 6 a.m. and he's just, he's like, he knows everything about the town. He's the nicest guy and he just starts talking immediately <laughs> like, oh, you're working on that house? You know, they built that foundation back in 1856, dug it by hand. And when he comes back out, he's still going off like, damn kid had hair to his sh- his shoulders. And he said, just, just <laughs> trim, trim it a little. <laughs> could do this whole thing. And my favorite major character is Beetlejuice. Like, how could you not? It's hard. Like, there are a lot of other people I'd rather pick. Um, not rather. Forget that. There are. I want to pick everybody for sure. Like Otho is definitely one of them. But yeah, Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice is. Beetlejuice is everything about this movie. Yeah, it, it's such a zany film. Lydia is great. I think my my major character. I'm gonna pick Barbara. Yeah. There's no wrong answer. Like, be yeah. happy about whoever you pick because they're all them, great. All of them. But I just want to. I'm gonna single out Barbara because she's so sweet and. And so pleasant. Mm-hmm. I don't, well, her and Adam as a pair are great, but there's a few good gags with Barbara, like the when Beetlejuice is doing his stupid, sexy dance towards the hey, Inferno I'm room. It, baby. <laughs> towards the Inferno room that he at like he made. Yeah, where can a guy average? And Barbara says myself. to Adam, she's like, Adam, why did you build that? <laughs> well, and then there's the moment too. It's like the second date that they've been dead. Mm-hmm. Um, she's sleeping, and then when he when Adam rolls over, it reveals and that she's the blanket, yeah. she's hovering she's not even on the bed and that's when we find out that the uh, the deets have moved in like it's honestly her yelp there in that scene <laughs> yeah, I, uh, there isn't a detail about this movie like i couldn't imagine cutting any scene or not liking any scene i love everything about this movie it is my art and it is dangerous <laughs> yeah. i don't want to die like this <laughs> I my, one of my second second I guess major characters would be Charles. I, I love watching every scene with Charles because what he's essentially done is bought this dead couple's house and he just wants to become that guy. Yeah. Like I'm pretty sure he's wearing his clothing <laughs> and he's like reading all of his like well, was it average homeowner magazine? I'm like bird, oh, I'm gonna take up bird watching. <laughs> yeah, and it immediately disgusts him. He finds a bird eating a worm. He's like, Ugh. <laughs> well, he. <laughs> He's definitely moved here to stave off like a men- like a breakdown. I think so. So because he's constantly trying to just like get rid of the chaos. Like he just wants one room that is like his own that is unlike anything that he's ever had. Uh, so it, it's such an absurd story. Like I I wonder what the kernel of the of the idea was because there's so many different ways this movie could have gone, and the fact that it turns out that Beetlejuice is trying to 
wed a child bride that is Lydia because she's also happens to be weird. And then there's like a wedding, but then the Dietzes are in over their head because they're trying to impress their business folk with ghosts. So then they perform this like spell slash ritual that starts killing the Maitlands. And this is all happening while Beetlejuice is trying to marry their daughter. Yeah. It's kind of bonkers. It's kind of fucking nuts. Like, if can you imagine pitching that to a studio? Like, imagine Tim Burton walking in and be like, so. <laughs> <laughs> Sit down for a second, guys. Remember that time you fired me from the lot, this very lot? Okay, well, here, I got one for it's you. It's an exorcism movie, but the people that are possessed are the ghosts. <laughs> like, so, if the house is being haunted by the living. Yeah. Oh, man. So brilliant. Like, there was, there was a period in the 90s where just, like, every idea that guy had was just incredible. Oh, I know he's got another one in there. I just, we just need to give him a low budget. Maybe. That's the, hey, big, the key. Hey, big eyes was... The key. Was, uh... No, it's the key. Same as, like... The problem is that technology today is great, so we all want to use it because it's mm. great. But I, I, I want... I want more 90s films. I want more 80s films. I just want to, like, take CGI and motion capture... I just want to get rid of them for a little while. I think the problem maybe, maybe Johnny Depp is... too. We need to get we need to maybe we need to stop using Johnny Depp Tim Burton. <laughs> yeah, um, he's is, a crutch now. He's is, not. <laughs> is he in Dumbo? Does I don't he, know. Does he play Dumbo? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but see, like I have no interest in Dumbo at all. But I I'm not in, I'm not on board with the the Disney live like, action remake live action CGI train. I'm just yeah. not doing them. Yeah. I used to love Dumbo as a kid. Uh, I don't think it's going to make any any difference to me whether or not I, I like this new one. I mean, it kind of just looks like that circus scene, that circus segment in Big Fish yeah. expanded. Um, and that's probably why they why they chose Tim Burton to do it. Yeah. And Danny DeVito's cast in basically the same role. <laughs> um yeah, I I I think with Tim Burton and every other director that that's done it, I think placing the darkness in the perfect nuclear family stuff is all gone like i don't know that we're ever going to get another movie like his his early stuff oh so like, so smart though like with yeah. edward scissorhands oh and yeah, Beetlejuice. yeah yeah edward scissorhands is probably the best example uh beetlejuice is also like a perfect example and Pee Wee herman is, is a lot darker than it looks but it's like dark around the edges yeah yeah the my favorite thing about tim burton though and i think a lot of people at least our age who are like us had this kind of connection to those early Tim Burton films because um, for me at least like Beetlejuice and Nightmare Before Christmas like they were the first dark things that I was able to experience and Mm -hmm. and I'm the only one in my family that's like me that's into what I'm into and to discover those things so organically in these movies it's it's like something woke up in me like I I I instantly connected to them in a way that I didn't even understand like I I didn't even know I was weird yet yeah and it was just like I have this is for me or there there are other people out there that are like me and that are doing things Mm. that are who they are like the fact that a person like Tim Burton can exist creatively it just like opened up this world in me that I was just like at six years old. I think I saw Nightmare Before Christmas when I was four years old. I probably saw this movie when I was six year old, six years old, and they both just stuck with me. And they've been my favorite movies for that long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beetlejuice particularly, like I love Nightmare Before Christmas, but Beetlejuice is just so zany and so perfect, and it's it's got this perfect blend of being whimsical and and still possessing this darkness and still addressing the darkness yeah and and disney was really great about that addressing things that were dark um 
or people dying you know like yeah. disney didn't or at least early disney didn't necessarily skirt away from those things i don't think this is um, a disney movie though Nightmare Before Christmas. Okay, I'm just yeah, talking sure. about kids, yeah, stuff sorry, for sorry, kids. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. um, Beetlejuice always played on YTV when we were kids. Like we, yeah, it was accessible yeah, yeah. to us as children, and it it connected to me in a way that I don't think anything ever 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 did when I was a kid. Yeah. And and it's it's weird to to describe yourself as a child as being weird because you think of of, of the weird in you coming on at puberty. You think of like you know when teenagers are gauze and stuff. But sure. I was weird when i before those chemicals were even introduced into my body like yeah. i i was born weird and i connected to tim burton content i think tim burton for a lot of kids is, is where it it really gets like set in stone because before that you have uh there are these scenes in movies that kids don't like because like oh that's the scary or strange part of the movie and i'm not nuts about it I'd be like i want more of that yeah be, i want be the, the like, end of oh we're back God. to be the whole movie and then yeah when you see beetlejuice or edward scissorhands you're like holy shit this is all of it yeah and it's fun to think about, and I think about it now, like that there are kids out there that connected the way I did with Beetlejuice and Night Before Christmas with Coraline and Paranorman. Yeah. And fuck, I love Paranorman. Like growing up weird is like a really hot because you are a loner. You're kind of alone in being m- morbid, mm. even if it's in a fantastical way. And. I remember when Paranorman came out and I was working like retail at the time with a bunch of moms and none of them were taking their kids to see it yeah. because it addressed... Well, because they didn't want to see it either. Well, and it, and it addressed death in a in a dark kind of way. Like, at it, least it, in a it, frank way too. Yeah, yeah, it talks about death a lot. There's a girl that dies and they address it. And they the fact that they didn't even show... They didn't even let their kids see it because of the, the subject matter kind of made me sad because it's like, what if your kids are weird yeah like what, what if, if they're really into that well what if they need something like that because i know that like if i grew up and i didn't have the weird kind of content that i did i don't know if i would have explored creativity as an outlet as much as i did as a kid like yeah. i i sought out drawing and painting and sculpting and doing all that stuff and not because tim burton was all of those things but because i knew that there was there was a spot for me in the world yeah in- is it easier to be weird now though because of streaming services though Oh, you mean like to like as a kid, like I'm into this and I'm going to yeah. look it up. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know because I'm not a kid in this period. That's a really but... good point. Well, I mean, if, if everybody's got a device and we'll at least say that a PlayStation or a smart TV with several Netflix profiles is a device, um, then I think a kid can tailor their own weird stuff. Because if you tell Netflix, oh, I didn't like this. I like that. I like that. It'll be like, hey, you want to watch, watch Paranorman? And yeah. It'll I wake think, you up to that. I think accessing things like that, like that are are definitely easier nowadays. But to, to know that they exist, I think, is a different thing. Like that. that dis- oh, you're saying the fact that discover- Beetlejuice came along and it was just like, I didn't know what this was. I didn't know it existed. And it just got put in front of me. Exactly. Got it. Like the fact that I just... I'm sure after that I was like, oh, I need to watch everything like this. Yeah. Or I need to see everything like this. And you just get hungry for that kind of content. The surprise needs to be part of that discovery. I think so. Okay. Yeah. And that, and you hear that same story from a lot of horror fans in that most of us watch these, watch scary movies way before we were supposed to. Yeah. We were staying but up late. But we all later. wanted to is the thing. But I think the discovery and like the vulnerable age at which you, you find these things, they become a part of you in a different way than if you were... 18 years old and you're going on a date 
with your first boyfriend and you're going to see a scary movie. Like, I don't think those people, not that I'm not trying to be a horror elitist or anything, but. Yeah, you don't get it. I just think it, it holds a different place in your heart. Yeah. Then, um, cause it, it's so much more than just movies for the, for the community. And it's like a place of belonging, I guess. It's, sure. I don't know. Finding out who you are through film and that, that just being a creative person, knowing you're not the only person that's that kind of way is, it's warming. <laughs> it's a very very deep connection i have with this silly whimsical film <laughs> i think that's important to lydia in the movie though right because she is strange and unusual and, and she she's feels so alone, alone. yeah she's nothing like her family even though her family is fucking weird yeah her family is pretty fucking weird uh and, and you could say part of it's a, like a bit of a rebellion i guess but it's not like she is just strange and unusual and she finds that other people are also strange and unusual in their own strange and unpredictable ways. And it makes her a better person in the end. Well, yeah, because I think she she learns, too, that there's a different there's different kinds of strange and unusual. Like the like the Maitlands are this completely normal and perfect couple. And the strange and unusual thing about them is just that they're dead. Yeah. And she gets along so well with them because she wants to be dead too. But well, sure. But no, just because they're nice and they're kind to her and they give her the time of day which I think her parents are going through some things right now. I don't know how much love is in that marriage. Delia is very self-involved. Her father's very self-involved. So she's not getting heard a lot, which which is I mean kind of every teenager's complaint. And the fact that she can see them like is just evidence that she's not just a teenager who's going through a phase because she is able to read and understand the handbook. She helps them to understand the world that they're living in now. It's, yeah, it's just so good. Yeah, they all help each other be better people, I guess. Really not how I thought I was going to end this conversation. <laughs> um, but it is it is really hard to talk about movies you love. It is so hard. Yeah. This is the reason why we don't we haven't done some of our favorite films on the podcast because it's it's hard not to take it to this weird like profound place. And I know it's just fucking Beetlejuice and it's just this wonderful kick-ass film and it's allowed to be all those things because yeah. it is just a fun film. And that's why we put it on so many times. Well, what else are we going to do? Just like remind you guys like of all those. I mean, like I, th I think the front half of this is probably reminding you of like all those great scenes you love. But yeah, we could we could walk through the plot or we could just talk about what the movie means to us, I guess. And uh, I assume it means the same to you listening. I don't know that I've ever really met anybody that doesn't like Beetlejuice. I'm sure once this podcast goes out, I'm going to find out that there are a bunch of people out there that don't care for it. Everybody I know who is remotely interested in horror or strange things finds Beetlejuice to be like one of the best movies they've ever seen. And how do you even describe Beetlejuice? Because it's not a horror film. No. Um, but it's definitely suitable for this podcast. And it's definitely dark family. It's dark and whimsical. Yeah. Horror comedy. Sure. Comedy fantasy. Halloween. It's Tim film. Burton. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's just, there's no way to just, it's so zany. Is zany a genre? Well, I think any Marx Brothers movie would be referred to as zany. So, yes, absolutely. I think it's probably safe to assume, uh, as you have already, that we're both giving this movie a four out of four. Um, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yep. <laughs> you gave me eyes like I had a different rating. I'm sorry. 
Did you have any other any of anything else? I don't know. You I feel like we didn't about? talk about the movie at all. Yeah, I just I talked about, about it like as a concept. All right, if we want to talk about some comparisons between uh, some between Candyman and Beetlejuice, both movies deal with real estate. Obviously, Candyman heavily focused in Cabrini Green, a lower income housing. Not necessarily what we get in Beetlejuice, but Dad very focused on good parking and structure and like, ooh, we could totally turn this place into an amusement park. He's gonna he's gonna come in and take something that's already already uh, got a purpose and reuse it for something. I'm drawing a very loose connection here, but I think that I think the names exist. thing is enough, John. I think it's Okay, fun. sure, just the sheer fact that we repeat names. Yeah, that's enough. And you need to to evoke the mythical figure, which both have connotations with the Bloody Mary legend. <laughs> exactly. Even though Beetlejuice is like that's kind of the end of it. What do you mean? I don't know. He doesn't I guess he Would Beetlejuice kill anybody? Do you think if he had the opportunity, would he go that far? Does he kill the, uh, does he kill Maxie and Sarah Dean? There's the one question. Are those the two victims of the movie? Because he definitely launches them out of the goddamn house. Yeah, but it's, that's, mm. I think even just being thrown through one floor, like even if they on the yeah, second floor landed on a Yeah, but that's cartoon violence. Bed. I don't think that, like, yeah. I think they would, they would land out and they would be fine. I don't know. We'll find out later, I guess. What do you mean? <laughs> if there's a sequel. <laughs> What are you even talking about? Oh, I assume we would open on Maxie and Sarah's funeral. Oh, 30 years later? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> are there any last minute things you wanted to talk about? Anything uh, in regards to Beetlejuice that we did not address? Like the plot of the film? <laughs> uh, I think we touched it. I think we did. I think we touched on it enough, yeah. Uh, I, I super love the football team. I love Juno, who played by Sylvia Sidney that we just found out was in God Told Me To. Um... Which is a fun, weird, nothing like Beetlejuice movie that you guys should definitely check out, uh, directed by Larry Cohn. I don't know. I could sit here for an hour and rattle off everything I like about the movie. I, I know. I love everything about I it. I feel like it would just degrade to us, like, shouting quotes at each other. And then, yeah. be like, the, the newest episode of Nightmare on Film Street was really weird. They picked a movie they really love, and it was, like, nonsensical. Yeah, and I think it's still <laughs> going right now. I think they're still talking about it. <laughs> I just, like, let my podcast player keep playing. I took my headphones out. Now I'm buying a baguette. <laughs> Yeah, so Beetlejuice, four out of four. We do want to hear what you guys think about it, as long as it's nice things. Don't tweet me that you hate the movie, because I'm just going to not reply. <laughs> I don't know. If you didn't like it, let me know. Uh, yeah, you can talk to John. Yeah, I'm just interested. I'm a wall of Beetlejuice love. <laughs> <laughs> Big surprise from Mrs. Greenhair over here. We are controlling transmission. This week's episode of Nightmare on Film Street is brought to you by Baffmint & Co. Small batch soap inspired by horror and the macabre. This week's pick is the Sunken Place Bar, a deceptively delicate soap that is light and warm with a bottomless calming, inspired by Jordan Peele's Get Out. Memories of a hypnotizing gaze, a warm smile with a hint of foreboding, and an endlessly twirling spoon. Get 10% off your order with the code NIGHTMARE at baphometandco.com. That's 10% off with the coupon code NIGHTMARE at baphometandco. Made by hands, sometimes severed. We're going to stick around for a few more minutes and play a game that I've put together called What's My Name? What's My Name? A creative play on our creative play on the title of this episode. Exactly. <laughs> It's really simple. I'm gonna I'm gonna read Kim the name of a ghost or a specter, and she's gotta tell me what character that movie's from. 
I'll give her some multiple choice to make it easy, but for example, Kim, if I was to tell you the name of this ghost, his real life name before he became a ghost was Daniel Robital. Robitali? You'd have to tell me, what movie was he from, Kim? Is it multiple choice? Not right now. But I require it. Okay, sure. It's going to give the answer away. Is it, uh, is it Lights Out? Um, is it Candyman, Candyman 2, or Candyman 3? Is that what Candyman's name is? Yeah. It's not something that you, you find out in the first movie, though. Oh, so Candyman 2. Well, it, can't, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> I guess I would have been wrong. <laughs> uh, but that is Candyman's name. I hope I pronounced it right. Uh, but yeah, I went back and watched that scene where they're talking about the mythos at the at the dinner table, and they don't mention his name. He just says, oh, Candyman's father. because he's legend father. now. Exactly. His, he doesn't have a name anymore. That is that is his persona. He has transcended his, his physical form. He's no longer that person whatsoever. He's just Candyman. It's like Beetlejuice. We don't know if Beetlejuice's name was. It doesn't matter. But you can get that game, uh, the ghost names, say my name. No, what is it? What's my name? What's my name? You can get that over at patreon.com slash nightmare on film street in return for supporting the show. Uh, you can also get other bonus episodes and some other cool swag and merch. If you could review the podcast, give us a five-star rating on iTunes, Spotify. I don't think you can review shit on Spotify. Stitcher, anywhere you're getting this podcast to help us grow the horde and get the show in front of more fiends. It really helps. And if you, you you know, you can't afford to support the show on Patreon, no big deal. Just recommend the show to a few friends. That's all we ask. I'm John. I'm Kim. Stay Stay creepy. It appears you made it out alive. Just long enough to tell the tale of the nightmare on Film Street. Now, Help us grow the horde. Leave a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe. Continue this week's conversation on Twitter by following at N-O-F-S Podcast. And as always... More terror can be found lurking on our website, www.nightmareonfilmstreetpodcast.com. Until next week, stay creepy, fiends. <laughs>